Welcome to season two of The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about transformative travel experiences hosted by me, Esme Benjamin, editor of Full Time Travel. Coronavirus made it incredibly difficult to travel this year, which is why I believe we need stories like the ones on this podcast more than ever. Live vicariously with me every week as I Zoom with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest this episode is Eric Weiner, best-selling author of The Geography of Bliss and The Geography of Genius, as well as the critically acclaimed Man Seeks God and his most recent book, The Socrates Express, In Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. A former foreign correspondent for NPR, Eric has reported from more than three dozen countries. His work has appeared in The New Republic, The Atlantic, National Geographic, The Wall Street Journal, and the Best American Travel Writing Anthology. When he set out to research his first book, The Geography of Bliss, Eric was experiencing a self-described midlife crisis. The project took him to the world's most contented countries, including Bhutan, a place famous for its gross national happiness index. It was there he met a Buddhist monk and academic who changed how Eric saw the world and how he defined happiness. His name, fittingly, was Karma. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, Eric. I'm very excited to speak to you. I've seen your book on basically every list of the best travel books, so that says something, I think. Yes, thank you. I've written three others since too, but yes, The Geography of Bliss did definitely make a mark. So I'm curious to know a little bit about your childhood and what some of the early experiences you had that gave you a taste for travel. Well, I ran away from home when I was five years old. <laughs> and and I would have gotten to wherever it is I was trying to get had the Baltimore County Police not put a sudden end to my expedition. So I think from at least the age of five, I've had a really severe case of wanderlust. And, you know, I've, I've been traveling ever since. And I, I think sometimes when you travel, you're running away from something and sometimes you're running to something and sometimes it's all mixed up together. But that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a place person and I tend to think of ideas first in terms of not what or why or how, but where. I love that you ran away from home at a young age because I was obsessed with running away too for some odd reason. Maybe it's something that, uh, you know, phase that all kids go through. But I remember leaving my house. It felt like I'd been away for days. And by the time I came back, my mum was like, oh, I didn't know that you'd left. <laughs> I was like, they didn't even notice I was gone. <laughs> so, so there were no, there were no police officers involved in yours. No, no, I didn't get that far. <laughs> there were in mine, and I just remember thinking, I just have to know what's around the next corner, and then the next corner, the next corner after that. And before I knew it, I guess we got a mile or two from home. I dragged along a a, a neighbor, a friend, another five year old, and I remember he just wanted to go back, and he didn't want to go any further. And I'm like, come on, Drew, let's just go a little <laughs> bit further. I don't know what happened to our friendship after that day, but he's, I haven't heard from him since. <laughs> it's like, this kid's crazy. <laughs> You're very brave, it sounds like. And were you always a writer as well? Or was that something that came later? I mean, look, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I consider myself more of a late bloomer. I sort of floundered my way through college. Uh, wish I had paid more attention. Found myself graduating with you know, a pretty much worthless degree in English literature. 
no real marketable skills, you know, other than I guess I could string together a sentence in English and and this real fierce desire to see the world, preferably on, on someone else's dime. And uh, so I became a journalist and, and a foreign correspondent because to me, that just seemed like the best job in the world. Didn't think of myself as a writer so much as a, an explorer and a reporter. And the writing part of me came many years later. Yeah, I imagine... You know, a foreign correspondent isn't travel writing in the typical way we think about it. You weren't, you know, focusing on touristy things in each of these places, but you were going to lots of different countries and doing deep dives into these societies. So how was that period shaping your ideas about place and culture? Well, I mean, you're right. There's a difference between being a journalist and being a travel writer. There's a fair amount of overlap in that, you know, I was, I was living in India and in Japan and Jerusalem. and and I was in the thick of foreign cultures, and I was traveling with a purpose. I wasn't a tourist. I was, you know, working as a journalist, which gave me uh, an excuse to probe a bit deeper into people's lives than would otherwise be considered polite if you were just passing through. And I, I like that part of the job. There are other parts which I can talk about in a, in a second that that I didn't care for, but that sort of license to you know, be, be nosy. An observer. <laughs> be, yeah, be nosy. I guess you're right to be nosy to ask these questions. And sometimes, you know, I was just be amazed that as, as a foreign correspondent, people, Japanese person or Palestinian or whoever it was, would say things to me that they wouldn't say to their own friends or their own spouse. I was sort of safe because I was the outsider, the other. And so people would open up to me up to a point, you know, I was still a man wielding a microphone when I worked for, for NPR. And, you know, that created a, a barrier between me and the person I was interviewing. And it, it lent, lent itself to a kind of transactional experience where, you know, I was looking for something from them, a, a tape cut or some vivid description, something I could use in my story, you know, ego food, I call it. And, and they might be looking for something from me. You know, they want to tell their story to the world. They want to, if they're a government official, they're trying to spin a bad situation in a certain way. So there, there is this transactional nature to journalism, even good journalism, that began to wear on me. You were married at this point and you'd just become a father. How did you balance family life with your job at that time? Well, the, the marriage came before the... Uh, the fatherhood, just to be clear. And there was a, a long, for, for most of my time as a foreign correspondent, I was married, but not a father. So, you know, my wife and I ha had and still have a understanding that our relationship consists of two polar opposites. Either we're together all the time or we're apart for long periods of time. Uh, it took the pandemic to sort of upset that very delicate balance. So I would go off, you know, I'd often go off an assignment thinking, you know, I'm going to Pakistan for a few days, maybe a week. And, you know, six weeks later, I'm back home having gone to Pakistan and Nepal and Thailand. And, you know, just you just get ricocheted from one place to another. But I, I think, you know, one of the keys to a good relationship is, is long periods of absence. Mm -hmm. I think it's a cliche, but it's true. Absence does make the heart grow fonder and familiarity uh, can breed contempt. And I think we're not designed to live the way we've been living for the past year, which is on top <laughs> of each other 
for, you know, continuously. And that's why I sort of joke, but only half joke that when the pandemic's over, over I vow to spend less time with my family. Oh yeah, no, you're completely right. And I'm sure that you were coming back from those trips with so many stories to tell, a lot of uh, dinner table conversation for your wife. Yes. Yes. And they, they, the, the key is that uh, my wife and my daughter miss me. That kicks in like five days after I've gone away. The first five days are just, you know, because I'm not, I don't launch easily. I, I'm a difficult launcher. I'm running around looking for adapter plugs and passports <laughs> and packing. And it's like total chaos before I leave for a trip. And I've been doing this for like a long time, for many years. And it does, I don't seem to get any better at packing and preparing to launch. So when they finally get me out the door, it's just like, oh, he's gone. And you know, maybe three, four, five, six days later, they start to miss me. So that's the, that's the arrangement. So it sounds like with the, the happy marriage and the baby and the impressive career, you're kind of hitting all the right milestones of successful adulting. Did it feel as good as one might imagine it would feel? No, <laughs> it didn't. And partly that's because of my kind of Eeyore-ish personality, a bit mopey. You know, some people are half glasses, half full, other people glasses, half empty. And I tend to be glasses broken and shattered on the floor and you just <laughs> stepped on it with your bare feet. <laughs> so, so there's that going on. But, you know, the other reason is I, I would go off to say, I remember I went to Afghanistan a while ago and spent a few weeks there and reported all these stories and broadcast, you know, they sent them off to Washington. They were broadcast on NPR and then I got an email from a friend saying, heard you're reporting from Afghanistan. What's it really like there? And I thought, well, you know, my reports are supposed to convey what it's really like there. And I realized that there was a gap between what journalists put into their stories and what they say over the bar, over a drink or four. I wanted to close that gap. I wanted to, in my storytelling, have no gap between what I'm telling the world and what it's really like there. And I want it to be more personal. You know, the, the dirtiest word in journalism is I. And, you know, we're taught to avoid it and to be objective. And, and I don't think that's actually possible. Mm. Um, just as there's some people we like more than others, there's some uh, places we like more than others. And I really was chomping at the bit to say that. And the, the, the last element of my sort of discontent for this otherwise wonderful job, I have to be clear about that, is the relentless chronic negativity. As a story is only a story if it's bad news. Good news is, okay, maybe there's a feature story that you get to after you've covered the war or the famine or whatever it is, but it was an afterthought. And that, that bothered me. Um, I thought if you're going to treat the world as this big laboratory of ideas and, you know, why not focus on, on the good ideas? And, you know, we Americans certainly don't have a monopoly in good ideas. And um, all those things bothered me a little bit in the beginning and increasingly bothered me a lot. You said in the pre-interview notes that you felt as if you were having a bit of a midlife crisis. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I've been having a continuous midlife crisis um, <laughs> since I was born. I think it's just one rolling midlife crisis. <laughs> the, the problem is when, I think it's easy when you find yourself in a situation that you're really unhappy with. You know, if you're just in a dead-end job and you hate it and you just fantasize about, I don't know, traveling, then, you know, you're motivated 
to get the hell out of that dead end job. But what happens when you have a job that's almost perfect, uh, that's good in many ways, that's great in many ways that many people would kill to have? Um, how do you walk away from that? That was the essence of, of the crisis, I think. There's a line, I, I think it's from the Bible, I'm not 100% sure, about dropping things not meant for you. And I, I keep coming back to that increasingly so in my life, letting go of things not meant for you. And being a foreign car bondit was almost meant for me, but not quite. And so I, you know, one day um, said to my editor, um, you know, I'm tired of going around the world reporting on what's wrong with it. What if, you know, what if I spent a year going around the world writing about the happiest places, you know, and reporting about it? And he said in so many words, um, what have you been smoking and can I get some of it? Um, <laughs> and uh, kind of said, no, that's, you know, maybe you do a story in your spare time, but that's, no, that's not what we do. And so then I said, well, thought to myself that this could be a book. And I had never written a book before and always wanted to, but could never settle on the right idea. But this struck me as the right idea. And I, I found a, an editor who who agreed. And I was, I was off and running and, and uh, the result was the geography of bliss. So I suppose an important question to ask at the beginning of the geography of bliss is what constitutes real happiness? How did you go about thinking about the question? I wanted the book to be one giant question about what is happiness, really. Mm. I, I didn't want to just define it up front and say, this is what it is. I wanted the book by, you know, if, like if you ask the question, what is good food? The way you answer it is by sampling lots of good food, right? And, <laughs> and, and so I wanted the, the book to both ask the question and, and answer it. Um, and the, the bottom line is I, I like the, the definition that the psychologists and sociologists in, involved in the science of happiness, the way they define happiness, which is and the, the technical term they use is subjective well-being. I like it, not because it's wordy and it's kind of clunky, but I like the word subjective, that happiness is subjective, um, that only you can tell me how happy you are. So the way they measure happiness around the world is, you know, it doesn't involve any fancy instruments or complicated formulas. They simply ask you overall on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you these days? You know, not at this particular moment, because maybe you're having a good day or a bad day, but, you know, it's a self-assessment of how happy do you think you are. And it sounds incredibly simple and almost too, too simple, but, you know, it, it is the best measure. It's simply how happy would you say you are, um, because your self-evaluation matters. And I can't tell you how happy you are. I can say, oh, Esme has a wonderful apartment in Brooklyn, and she's got this job and this going for her. So she must be an 8.5. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Mm. Although maybe you are an 8.5. I don't, you could be an 8.5, but that's <laughs> up to you to decide. Well, certainly not this year, that's for sure. So obviously when you were diving into the research, you started looking at countries that you could visit for the book. How did you kind of whittle them all down to a short list? Right, because you can't go everywhere. And every book leaves a lot on the cutting room floor. It's not going to be mm. a book worth reading. So uh, two ways. One was um, I went by the numbers. You know, I, I started off at the World Database of Happiness in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, where they crunch all the numbers. Uh, and so I was looking for 
places that were at the top of these happiness surveys, because they do them around the world, and that were a bit surprising. You know, I think, you know, if, if it were Fiji or some tropical paradise, people would say, oh, yeah, of course, they're happy. But it's surprising that Iceland is in the top five um, because it's cold and dark and it's got the word ice in it. You know, they're pretty, pretty mm-hmm. upfront about it. And it's surprising that Switzerland is, is always in the top five because it's, it's kind of boring. It's just not, the, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not the Guadavi of the French or the, um, the good life in, in Italy, the sweet life, la dolce vita, that's it. It's, you know, it's the kind of workmanlike a little bit boring, content Swiss. So, so I looked for, on the one hand for places that were surprisingly happy and that scored high, but then I also looked at places that were experimenting on the fringes of happiness, like Bhutan, which we'll talk about, um, where they have a policy of gross national happiness. And I went to places like Qatar, not because it's happy, but because it's wealthy. And it seemed like the perfect place to do a little experiment that if you think money buys happiness, oh, yeah, surely the Qataris... Ataris must be fabulously wealthy. Spoiler alert, they're not. Um, mm-hmm. So I was, again, like I mentioned before, treating the world as a laboratory of ideas and treating the world as a sort of happiness lab. And if you think it's money, then go to Qatar. If you think it's this, go to this place. And some of it was was just whimsical and that, you know, I, I've had a long time love affair with India and so I had to go to India. So the beautiful thing about writing a book is you get to choose where you want to go. Then you have just have to justify your choices to the reader. Bhutan, as you touched on then, is one of the places that you visited. And it's a place where the gross national happiness is regarded as more important than gross domestic product. Can you talk a bit about how they decide what gross national happiness encompasses, how they kind of um, assess the happiness of their citizens? Well, I should start off by saying it is a work in progress, and the Bhutanese would readily admit that. The way I like to describe it is, you know, if you had someone who thought the rules for soccer were kind of silly and wanted to come up with new rules, that doesn't mean they're the greatest soccer player in the world. They just want to change the rules of the game. And that's what the Bhutanese are with happiness. They're they're not the happiest place in the world, and they don't pretend to be. It's not Shangri-La, but they thought the king... Uh, Wang Chuck back in the 1970s actually thought this Western fixation on gross national product or gross domestic product seemed silly to him. Like, what's the point of government policy if not to make its citizens happy? So why not have gross national happiness? And over the years, they, they've run with it. And the idea has been picked up elsewhere. And they are work, still working on different metrics for measuring how happy people are in the effect on this government decision on that, on happiness. To me, it's, it's just a wonderful thought experiment and mm. a, a change in attitude. They still measure their economic output as well. It hasn't supplanted that. It sort of supplements it instead. And so it, it's a work in progress, but it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating idea, don't you think? I really do. Some of the things that they look at is psychological well-being, health, education, time use, cultural diversity and resilience, good governance, community vitality, ecological diversity and resilience, and living standards. It's just a kind of an overview of what they and, judge. But, but and also simply subjective well-being. How mm. happy are you overall? Um, asking people that. The other uh, metrics you mentioned you know, would probably fall under the the category of uh, 
quality of life, which is slightly different from happiness. Um, you can be living in uh, a country that has a very high quality of life where you know, there's low pollution and great public transportation. It doesn't necessarily mean people are happy. And you can be living in a place, theoretically, with has a very crummy quality of life, very low, and yet people are happy. So there's, there's, it's, it's not an exact science. It's so interesting to think about. Um, so this trip to Bhutan, did you have a plan? Who were you going to meet? Where did you want to go? So it was actually my first trip um, to Bhutan and my first trip reporting for my book. And I still, you know, use the toolkit, my journalist toolkit, in that I would bother people ahead of time, for lack of a better word, and say, hey, I'm going to Bhutan. Do you know anyone there? And a friend of mine calls it the golden thread. You know, you ask yeah. someone, hey, I'm going to Bhutan, and the more obscure the country, the better. You know, who should I talk to? I'm like, well, I don't know, but um, Joe over there, he's been to Bhutan three times. I'm sure he knows someone. And you get these introductions, it opens doors. And that's what I did. And, I, and so um, I had names and numbers. I should say also that, and I don't know how much has changed since, but when I went there, it was highly restricted and that you, you needed a visa and they restrict the number of visas. I'm pretty sure they still do. Um, they're trying to lower the tourist impact um, by allowing a relatively few number of tourists in each year. And you're assigned a a minder, which sounds very draconian, but it's it's not actually. It's someone who is your guide and hangs out with you. And so in the way it's in a way it's kind of a controlled experience, but once you're there, you can, you know, call up those people whose numbers you have in your in your notebook. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they have this very conscious approach to tourism and, you know, they've really managed to avoid the influencer crowd, <laughs> which I think probably enriches the experience. You know, the fact that there aren't that as many people there, you don't, you don't see it that much on social media. It feels like a bit more of an authentic experience perhaps. Right. And it's, you know, it, it's a country that was completely isolated until the 1960s. I mean, they didn't have a single road or hospital or currency and it's really open to tourists only fairly recently. So there aren't many undiscovered places out there, let's be honest. And I sometimes think I was born in the wrong era. I wish I was, I read about these adventurers from, you know, the 19th century. I think, wow, that would have been a time to be alive, you know, the time of seven years in Tibet and that sort of thing. And so Bhutan is still, you arrive there and you feel like you're someplace else. And you can't say that about many places these days. Mm, that's true. So there's not very many, I imagine, like international chains, McDonald's, things like that. Right. And partly because it's small. I mean, the capital, Timpu, has the honor of being the only capital city without one of these. Can you name what it is? I don't know. What is it? I'm sorry, your time is up. <laughs> the answer is traffic lights. There's not a single traffic really? light in the capital city. Oh my God. How do they, how do they navigate the traffic? There's a nice policeman um, standing on a little platform and he directs traffic. And, and a number of years ago, they briefly tried to put in a traffic light and people <laughs> revolted and they got rid of the traffic light and put back the policeman. <laughs> and so, you know, it has the advantage of being small and isolated. That gives, that tells you a lot of what you need to know about Bhutan. And so when you arrived, 
and you're there looking for signs of happiness. Did you feel like the people were just radiating contentment or was it less obvious than that? Less obvious than that. And they, they, they don't like to be compared to Shangri-La, um, which is this fictitious place that was written about in Lost Horizons. The first paperback in the world, there's a little factoid, was Lost Horizons. And Great that fact. was back in the 1930s. Yeah. And that, that is um, where we get Shangri-La. And they, you know, they're sort of on guard against, you know, this notion of foreigners coming to their country and expecting everyone to be happy all the time because of gross national happiness. Well, they're not. They have problems like, like everywhere else. Um, but they do, everyone dresses traditionally, um, which is actually required um, during daylight hours um, to wear the traditional go for the men and a similar outfit, I forget what it's called, for the women. Um, so immediately you don't see people in Western dress. You don't see any straight roads either. The, uh, this is an actual fact is the longest straight road is the runway at the airport in Paro. <laughs> That's amazing. And everything else is it's just switchback after switchback and windy and curvy. And it, you know, it takes forever to get anywhere. Um, and that just forces people to, to slow down. Um, and I think that's a good thing. And um, so, no, they're not, not, everyone's not radiating happiness. Um, but you do feel that when you arrive at Bhutan, you change the rhythm of your life. Um, I always like to say that all travel is time travel, that that is why free travel is to, to change the rhythm of our life, sometimes to speed it up. So we go to New York or Vegas, but more often to slow it down. And, and Bhutan does, um, does slow you down. Oh, I love that. All travel is time travel. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> you touched on this earlier, but, you know, obviously every time we visit a foreign country, we can't help the fact that our perceptions of it are filtered through like our cultural programming that we have. So was it challenging to explore Bhutan and draw conclusions about happiness without putting an American or Western filter on it? Well, I would challenge you, uh, your question a bit, because I actually think that, um, you know, objectivity is not possible. I can't yeah. go to Bhutan as an American and pretend I'm not American. So my attitude towards um, foreign lands like Bhutan is basically this. Um, if I see something strange that they're doing, playing archery, or the, the penises of Bhutan. We have not talked about the penises of Bhutan. <laughs> okay, let's uh, talk about the penises they, of they, Bhutan. <laughs> well, they are, they are everywhere, okay? You see them on storefronts, in town squares, these giant wooden phalluses. The <laughs> I've seen them phallus? in other places in right. Asia, and I've never really... Are they a sign of fertility? What do they mean? I've never really quite clarified oh, that. I, 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 you know, I had... My guide was a, a nice young man named Tashi, and I... I didn't know what to say at first because these giant <laughs> phalluses are everywhere. And I'm like, you know, finally, I'm like, Tashi, what's up with the phalluses? And <laughs> he said, oh, they're there to, to ward off evil spirits. I thought, well, in my experience, that's not the Incredible. way it works. But um, <laughs> right. So my attitude towards something like that is, is essentially this. Gee, that's strange. I wonder what they get out of this custom. Like the, and, and there's almost always a reason, and it might not be a good reason, but it often is a good reason. So in other words, not to just be totally cultural relativist and say, um, well, that's fine. I have no problem with these giant 
happiness is everywhere. That's perfectly, no, it's strange. It is strange. Okay. <laughs> and you, you have to say that, but then you take the next step, which is to remain open to the possibility that even though it's strange to you, that they might find something useful, worthwhile in it. And I, I find that that, that attitude has served me well around the world that gee, that's strange, but hmm, what are they getting out of it? And there's, there's always an answer um, to that last question, but you can't pretend that things like giant wooden penises aren't strange to us. They are. So, so that's, that's the approach um, I've always taken. And, and that's the approach I took in Bhutan. Um, And I think people respond to it and, you know, people, you know, people sometimes ask me, how do you get others in these foreign countries to open up to you? It's, it's, they pick up, I think, on my sincere quest. I really am trying to figure out a place. And I don't have that many preconceived notions other than the ones I can't help having because I'm an American. So I will tell you about probably the most profound moment I had in Bhutan was, was a meeting. Um, and I don't say interview because, you know, since I'm no longer a journalist, I've stopped using the word interview. I find it too transactional. I just met with this guy named Karma in, in the capital, Timpu. Now, I figure when you meet a guy named Karma, that's, that's a good day. That's like, you must, have done, <laughs> you must have done something right in a previous lifetime if you get to meet someone named Karma. Karma Ora, and he was head of a, the, the um, biggest and best think tank in Bhutan, and the only think tank in Bhutan. And he, he, um, he lived, uh, or no, we met in his office, which was up on a hill. Um, it's sort of a city of hills, Thimpu. And I remember driving up there and he greets me at the door and he's a very quiet man, speaks impeccable English. And he told me three things about happiness in life that have stuck with me to this day. And the first is, okay, I'm doing a book on happiness. So I start talking about happiness and I must have used the phrase personal happiness. And he stopped me and he's like, what is it with you Americans and your personal happiness? You know, you're always talking about your personal happiness. And he says, happiness isn't personal. It's relational. It's 100% relational. And I'm writing this all down. And I think he's exaggerating. It's not 100%. Maybe it's 55, 60. But, um, but the more, as I traveled and as I researched the science of happiness, I found out that he was exactly right, that happiness is relational. It's, you know, connective tissue. And we, just in our language in the West, we look at it as just another personal thing we're working on, like our physique and our career. And, and happiness doesn't work that way. So that, that was one thing he said to me. Um, and the other was, you know, he was a successful man. He grew up in a small village and ended up getting a PhD from Cambridge University. And so I asked him what his secret to happiness was. And he said, well, he thought about it for a moment. He said, I would say it's having, having low expectations or no expectations. Mm. I think he said. And I thought he was pulling a fast one on me. Like, you know, really? You came from a small village in a Himalayan country, got a PhD from Cambridge, and you had no expectations. And I mean, he's really onto something. And this is a very Eastern Hindu and Buddhist thought. Mm, it's very you know, Buddhist. That yeah, and the idea that you you put a hundred percent effort into whatever it is you're doing, but you have exactly zero percent invested in the result. 
it's no expectations doesn't mean laziness. You sit around couch on the couch watching TV 24 hours a day. You, you do things and you are fully invested in them, but you're not invested in the results. You know, one reason Americans are not as happy as we could be is that we're too focused on happiness, right? Yeah. So we suffer from what one, one uh, person told me, he called it the unhappiness of not being happy, um, <laughs> which is a particularly American malady because we think, well, if we're not happy, what's wrong with us, damn it, you know? And, you know, it turns out, in fact, one of the happiest countries in the world, Denmark, on these surveys comes out as also the country in Europe, at least, with the lowest expectations uh, about the future. So. That's two <laughs> nuggets of wisdom that karma gave me. And the third, and this is what we were talking about earlier, but I wanted to just be more personal and to not have this almost armor of the foreign correspondent. Like, I'm not really here. I'm just passing through. I have no skin in the game. I, had, I was actually living in Miami at the time and had been suffering from, well, I guess there's no other word for it other than panic attacks. Um, you know, I really thought I was dying. Something was wrong with me. Went to a neurologist who did all these tests and said, basically, you know, take some Xanax or see a shrink. There's nothing wrong with you. And so I confessed to karma that, you know, I've been having these panic attacks. This is a man I just met like a half hour earlier, or maybe 45 minutes earlier. And it, But that's the thing about travel is you you know, all of a sudden you will confess something to a man named Karma in Bhutan <laughs> you and not so tell your best, your best friend back home because it just <laughs> feels like it's okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, he looked at me, he said, well, the problem with you is you need to think about death more often. I'm like, <laughs> He's like, you need to think about death more often. I'm like, well, no, actually I'm thinking about it too often. Um, <laughs> like I failed to, I forgot to tell you about the, the flight into Bhutan, which is one of the scariest in the world, the plane banks at like just a few hundred feet above the ground and you're staring at a wall of rock, you know, like close enough to touch. And the pilots require special training and all that. So I, you know, I'm like, karma, actually, I think maybe I think about death too much. He's like, no, you don't really think about it. He says, it's just always there in the Western mind, never articulated, never looked at. And so it backs up on you. He said, I want to think, I want you to, think about death for 10 minutes a day. And I think I agreed to five minutes after some haggling uh, a day. <laughs> and uh, you know, he's, he's right about that too. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a forbidden subject in the West um, and a lot of countries. And that's, you know, you're having a panic attack about some fear you have not fully articulated. And often it's a fear of death. So yeah, I mean that, you know, when I, when you asked me to come on the show and talk about the trip that changed me. It was, it was really the encounter that changed me more than anything with this, this man named Karma in one afternoon in Thimphu, Bhutan. Yeah, he sounds like he packed a lot of wisdom into just one short meeting. He did. I came back, I, I went off into the, the boonies of Bhutan, you know, driving for several days way out there, you know, into the, the mountains um, with Tashi, my guide, and and, he, and Karma said, you have to see my mother. She lives in this village. And I went to see his mother and took some photos of her, brought them back to him. And we had, we had a, another meeting. And that's when he you know, told me that he had been suffering from stomach cancer for many years and struggling. And, um, you know, so his was a wisdom, not just from Cambridge mm. University. It was from the School of Life. And um, we, we stay in touch. I wouldn't say we're the best of friends, but we... You know, stayed in touch over many years. And I always find that 
you know, when I talk about the book, I often come back to karma. Because when we travel, really, it's, it's you know, is it the places? Yes, but it's it's the people we meet. It's the experiences we have. Um, it's not necessarily the energy of the place or the, you know, the vibes or whatever. So when he said you should spend more time contemplating death, was he talking about your death specifically or just, you know, coming to terms with, you know, again, in the Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, the impermanence of all things. What, what did he want you specifically to think about? I think personal, because it's, it's easy to think about death in the abstract. It's easy to think a lot about a lot of things in the abstract, right? Yeah. Um, and, and this is a thing that, you know, I've always been a person in love with ideas and I, you know, would rather sit down with a good book and analyze the ideas than have a genuine feeling, to be honest. And, and I think what karma was inviting me and challenging me to do was to think about death in the personal and not the abstract. And yes, as you say, to contemplate the impermanence, the uncertainty of life, and to not be completely and utterly freaked out by it. I just published a book about philosophy called the Socrates Express. And, you know, there's a chapter in there on stoicism, which has a lot of overlap with Buddhism. And the similar idea that, you know, Essentially, we can we control what we can control, and we let go and accept what we cannot. And too often, we get those confused. We think that so much more is under externally is under our control, right? We think if we don't have a good job, it's because we're not trying hard enough. If we're not wealthy, it's because we're not smart enough. Whatever, those are all under our control. Um, the Stoics and the Buddhists say basically, basically none of that's under your control. What is under your control is something you don't pay much attention to, which is your internal reaction to events. You know, this past year has just totally exposed this to be true. It totally exposed this lie we live that, you know, how many plans did you have for 2020? You know, probably quite a few. There's an old joke, do you, do you know how to make God laugh? And the answer is, Tell them your plans. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, something you said then made me think this idea of control. I think that we also, especially in the West, think that, you know, happy, happiness is something to strive towards that we, if we get just the right ingredients, like you say, the right, the right job, the right spouse, the right home, that we'll achieve a state of happiness. But actually, perhaps happiness is, is not quite within our control in that way. You can't, you can't necessarily force it. Right. And I, I come to the conclusion, spoiler alert, that uh, happiness um, is not something we should aim for directly. The British philosopher John Stuart Mill once said that you should approach happiness sideways like a crab. And <laughs> I, think, I think that's true, that it's, it's a byproduct of a life lived well. And to try to sit down and say, I'm going to be happy today or this year or whatever, um, you're, you're bound to fail. Um, because the moment you think that, okay, I'm happy, it, it slips away from you, right? So you, in a way, we have to play a trick with our mind to, if, we're, if you've ever found yourself in a place or a situation where you were happy, you, you don't want to call too much attention to it. I mean, to yourself, even, you know, you want to just experience it without naming it, because naming it diminishes it in a way and makes it more likely to slip away from you. So it, it, it's tricky. It's definitely tricky. Um, and I, other conclusion I reach, and this is 
you know, after years of thinking about these things is that, you know, maybe happiness isn't really the be all and end all. Maybe we don't want to lead a happy life. We want to lead a meaningful life. Mm. And there's often a lot of overlap with a happy life, but not a hundred percent. You can, you can lead a meaningful life that is uh, filled with moments of unhappiness as well. And that the unhappy moments actually contribute to your life being more meaningful. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I think a lot of the biggest challenges in our lives also produce the greatest sense of meaning for sure. Right. Or, or to be needed. You know, if you were to ask a single working mother of three holding down two jobs, are you happy? She'd probably look at you and say, well, you're asking the wrong question. I'm, (laughs) I'm needed. My life has importance and meaning. Um, and yeah, they're, they're not, it's not exactly the same as happiness. And that's where the, the field of positive psychology, as it's called, called, is moving to more this notion of flourishing, which is a big buzzword these days in the field. Are you flourishing or not? And that, that sort of is a bigger umbrella than just happiness. I love the word flourishing. It's a great word. Yeah. I'm really interested in what Karma said about happiness being relational as well as opposed to individual. And especially, I guess, this year, as we've started to think about, you know, systemic issues in society and, you know, racism and inequality. And I think that's interesting, like maybe a culture where their approach is that basically everybody's happiness is interlinked. It's just not about seeking happiness just for yourself. Yeah. And there's there's an interesting uh, study out there that several studies, actually, that found that basically your happiness is determined by the quality of your society more than your particular station in that society. So uh, as I like to say, it's better to be a big fish in a medium clean pond than (laughs) a huge fish in a dirty small pond. Um, In other words, you're only as happy as the least happy person. And you think that you can wall yourself off from the suffering out there, but you know, what do you see in, in countries with great dis- income disparity is people living in gated communities, which makes them nervous about crime all the time, which makes them less happy. So in a way, you're only as happy as the unhappiest person in a country. Um, and you know, that's something that many people around the world, myself included, probably still wrestle with. And so the wisdom that you picked up from Karma, which, by the way, I just can't believe his name is actually Karma. It's so perfect. <laughs> So the wisdom you picked up from him, were you able to apply it to your own life and kind of stop having these panic attacks and, and um, you know, the midlife crisis that you were going through at the time? I mean, I won't, I won't, you know, lie to you and say that I was flash of lightning. And since my meeting with karma, I've been perfectly well adjusted and the happiest, you know, least neurotic person in the world. That's not the case, but I often find myself, um, coming back to lessons learned from that book and from karma, um, that when I'm thinking about how feeling sorry for myself, you know, um, I will try to get out of myself and say, well, what can I do for someone else? What can I uh, do to connect with someone uh, or to make their day a little bit better? Again, happiness is relational. Or what he said about, about expectations. If I'm unhappy about you know, how a book is selling or how a project's doing, you know, I will stop and think, well, is it the project that's making me unhappy or my expectations of this project? And it's almost always the expectations. So 
lessons like that and you know lessons from from Thailand another another country I visited where this teacher was having a fight with his next door neighbor it was a subterranean fight in a way because it wasn't out in the open um the neighbor had a banana tree that was encroaching onto this teacher's backyard and the banana tree was being bringing insects and causing an infestation in his yard and he could have confronted the neighbor and said you know get your banana tree off my yard and don't ever let it in there again instead every day he would snip a little piece of the banana leaf off <laughs> until the the neighbor got the got the signal and called out his gardener to do something about the banana tree. And I said to the teacher, why don't you just openly confront, you know, your neighbor? That's the American way. He said, well, because the relationship is more important than the problem. And that's something I keep coming back to. Mm. The relationship is more important than the problem. And we, especially in America, tend to think that being right is the most important thing. But the the Thai way, and to some extent, the Asian way is no, being right is not the best thing. Um, the relationship is more important than the problem. I love that. You, this, this is only your first book. You've written several books since. And your latest book, The Socrates Express, um, it sounds like it was another knowledge quest. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, it was a wisdom quest. Wisdom quest. So... Yeah, because I, I, I make a distinction between knowledge and wisdom that, you know, there was a, a British uh, musician named uh, Miles Kington who said the difference between knowledge and wisdom is, is knowledge is knowing that the tomato is a fruit and wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. And <laughs> I, think, I think that is wise, actually. So, That's good. So philosophy, you know, comes from the ancient Greek word philosophia, which means love of wisdom. And a philosopher is someone who loves wisdom. And over the years, centuries, really, it's become this sort of arcane subject that's difficult and gives you headaches and you may flunk out of in university. So um, my book is an attempt to resurrect philosophy and return it to its original purpose from the ancient Greeks, which was, you know, therapy, basically, um, medicine for the soul, as they called it. And so I um, traveled around the world, as my tendency is, um, by train as much as possible, because I think it's possible to think on a train uh, and not possible to think on an airplane or a bus or other modes of transport. Um, and I'm what not alone that? in this. A lot of people, I don't know, a lot of people tell me they can think on trains. There's something about a long train ride in particular. So I chose 14 philosophers and had them each address a how-to question, but a very simple how-to question, like how to get out of bed, like Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher, how to enjoy like Epicurus, or how to fight like Gandhi, or how to grow old like Simone de Beauvoir. And um, it's, it is still place-based because I just need to go to where they did their thinking or in the case of Stoicism, I went to Stoic Camp in Wyoming, which is quite an experience. Oh, that's a thing? Um, that's a thing. It's a thing. Um, well, it wasn't a thing this year, but it'll be a thing again next year. It's, <laughs> it's run by this uh, philosophy professor at the University of Wyoming, named Rob Coulter, great guy, who um, thought, you know, one of the precepts of Stoicism is live in accord with nature. And he's like, well, we've got lots of nature here in Wyoming. Let's have a Stoic Camp. Um, and Stoicism has been for a number of years enjoying something of a revival. There's Stoicons and all best-selling books on Stoicism. And so he started Stoic Camp and you go out there and you 
you live rather stoically and uncomfortably, but you don't complain about it. And you discuss actually the works of ancient stoic philosophers. It was terrific. Um, so there was always a place. And, and, you know, for the chapter on Confucius, okay, it was obvious I should have gone to China, but I didn't. I went to, to New York and rode the F train for a solid week, um, <laughs> eight hours a day from 9am to like 7pm, 10 hours a day. And rode it from like Jamaica in Queens to Coney Island and back looking for acts of kindness because that chapter is about kindness. And uh, so sometimes you don't need to go that far. Like the, some of the best trips are the ones you take on the F train in New York. Some of the worst trips too on the F train. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> well, I love that. It sounds like both the Socrates Express the geography of happiness. In fact, just all your books would also be very appropriate for this moment that we're in. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, we, you know, this has probably come up on your podcast before is we can't travel <laughs> uh, for real now. We can travel virtually. And I always think my, you know, I'm a sort of travel writer in quotes in that, and there may have been a day when you could just say, go to Borneo and say, I went to Borneo and that's what my book's about. I went to Borneo. No man, no white man, you know, because that's the way adventure and exploration worked for a long time. Had ever been there, so I'm going to tell my tale of Borneo. And then, as I said, there there are basically no undiscovered places. So to be a travel writer, in my mind, you have to give the reader more. And to me, that's writing about the intersections of places and ideas and how how different places are animated by different ideas. Mm, I love it. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been lovely speaking with you. Where can people find you on the internet? I am on the internet. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, uh, at er com or at Twitter, Eric uh, underscore Weiner, W-E-I-N-E-R, or just Google me and I'll pop up. And before you go, let's do a quick fire round of questions if you're into it. <laughs> okay. I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm standing okay. straight now. Get ready. I'm ready to go. Go. What's the one thing you never, ever travel without? Books. I used to travel with 20 books. Then I bought a Kindle. Now I travel with a Kindle and 20 books, but books, <laughs> definitely. What's the one thing you think everybody should experience in their lifetime? Absolute, utter terror, at least once on the road. Oh, well, now I want to know about your story of absolute terror. Hey, I thought this was the rapid fire <laughs> game. Okay, that's, that's for the next podcast. Where are you from in a past life? Must be India. I, I really have a soft spot for India. Meridil Hindustani Hey, which means my heart is Indian. So I, I think I was Indian. Beautiful. Um, aisle or window seat? window of course of course um beach mountains or city city gotta be honest um i like the idea of nature more than nature itself <laughs> i'm a city boy um and as i write in uh my third book the geography of genius uh cities are where ideas go to have sex and there's just all this sort of cognitive copulation going on in cities. And that's where brilliant ideas happen in cities. So I'm going to see cities. 
Oh, you're full of great little catchphrases. I love it. What's your favorite place of all time to vacation? To vacation. Can I repeat an earlier answer? I'm going to have to say India, but specifically the southern state of Kerala. And to be on a rice boat in the backwaters of Kerala, watching the world go by um, and sipping a gin and tonic, um, that is paradise. One piece of content, so a book, movie, podcast that you'd recommend for a long haul flight. Can I recommend one book and one movie? Sure. Okay, book, uh, Invisible Cities by Italo Cavino, Italian writer. And it's uh, a wonderful book about 50-some imaginary cities. Um, but it's a short book, so you'll have time for a movie. And for the movie, I would recommend Groundhog Day. I know it's often <laughs> considered a, a rom-com and a comedy and not that serious. But it is, in my mind, the most philosophical movie ever made. And the beauty is, once you're done watching it, if it's a really long flight, you can just watch it again and again. That's, that works too. <laughs> I rewatched it in 2020 for obvious reasons. <laughs> I'm sure many people did. First place you'll visit once the pandemic is over. Ooh. Can't say India. <laughs> no, I can't say India. That would be, you can dip into the Indian well twice, but not three times. Oh, South, South Africa. Africa. It's, it, I've never been, it's never really been on my radar, but I have a friend, an American friend who visited Cape Town once and then started going back like once a year, twice a year, and then finally picked up and moved to Cape Town. I'm curious what the appeal is um, about the city and about the country of South Africa. And um, yeah, I would like to go to, to Cape Town. Great choice. Thank you so much. This was almost as much fun as actually traveling. <laughs> Hopefully it won't be too long before we can get out there again. Eric Weiner's latest book, The Socrates Express, In Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers, is out right now. Find a copy at your local bookshop. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. You can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so we can keep this adventure going. <laughs>